0: We finished chapter 16 last week. Finished a little late, but we finished it. I did want to mention just a couple things about that last section of Luke 16. It was the story of Lazarus and the rich man who um, both died. And we talked about that quite a bit, but I just, there are a couple other thoughts I wanted to throw in before we move into chapter 17. The traditional understanding of this story is that, first of all, that it wasn't a parable, that it was a real story, something that actually happened. And the support they give for that is that there's no other parable where the name of a character is given. And so the thought is that, well, since Lazarus has a name, it's a real story and not a parable. I do think that's a bit weak i mean I, i'm not I'm not dogmatic on the fact that this was actual, especially when um, the guy's name means somebody who's hard up or desperate so um, you know you can you can take your choice on that. The reason why people are so insistent that it isn't a parable is they want to take it very literally in terms of uh, Abraham's bosom and the place of suffering and that whole thing. This this story is really the most solid thing we have to tell us, okay, after people die, what happens to them? And obviously, this was before Jesus rose from the dead, so we know now if Christians die, they go into the presence of God. The Bible's very clear about that, I think. But uh, as to what happened before... This whole thing of two compartments of Hades, the paradise or Abraham's bosom, and the place of suffering, this is pretty much where you get that. And that very well may be legitimate. I'm not discounting that at all, but I just wanted to say, because we talked about that a bit last week, I just wanted to say, I'm a little concerned when you build entire doctrinal structure around uh, one passage of scripture or in particular around one um, story that was being told that wasn't being told to teach about what happens to people after they die. That was almost instrumental. What he was teaching was the that living luxuriously on the earth doesn't necessarily get you um, treasure in heaven. That was his whole point. And so um, I just wanted to say that generally people take this passage to say here's what happened, two compartments of the afterlife and then Jesus went to the, the place where the good people were and took all of them into the presence of God and the only support for that basically is Ephesians 4 where it talks about um, spiritual gifts and it says that if he ascended it means he first descended and he led captivity captive and he gave gifts to men so that little phrase is the basis that we have to say that he went to Abraham's bosom and took them all out so um, that very well could be the predominance of of evangelical scholarship would say that but I just don't like to brush over something just because everyone says it and and so I want to confess to you you know, that's one of the, those that I'm not um, real dogmatic on simply because that's not what it's teaching necessarily. He may be presupposing it. And it very well may be just like that. But I just didn't want to move on without saying, if you were going to argue this, this would be a fairly weak argument, okay? So, everybody clear on that? Cool. Luke 17. Jesus said to his disciples, It is impossible that no offenses should come. In other words, people are going to stumble. But woe to him through whom they do come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. Take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. He's In referring to little ones, he was perhaps gesturing to some children who were there and saying, you know, they're going to fall, they're going to be offended, they're going to go through difficulties, but don't let it be because of something that you did. It seems that what he's saying is you're going to be held accountable to a degree and whatever that consequence is, you'd be better off having a huge boulder tied around your neck and, and you'd be thrown into the bottom of the sea than to stumble people. And then as he talks about that, he exhorts them to forgive, to be forgiving people. And he certainly seems to be referring to kids, and perhaps it's kids that we might have the hardest time dealing with because they can be so difficult, but The whole thing is he's saying make sure that you live your life in such a way that you are not the excuse for young people rejecting Jesus Christ. You will be sorry if you do that. And that's a serious thing for all of us, but certainly those of us who have children and grandchildren. We just don't want to be the reason for someone rejecting Christ. But God loves adults too. And so really I don't want to be the cause of anyone being so offended that in some way they walk away from the Lord or they reject Jesus Christ because of me. And this is tough because, as Jesus says, inevitably it's impossible that offenses wouldn't come. And so you can't live your life without offending certain people. But the idea is be willing to restore relationships with people when that happens, be willing to say you're sorry um don't let your offense drive someone away from the lord and so it, it it by the way where it says in verse 3 um take heed to yourselves it goes focus on you and if your brother sins against you rebuke him and the word there for rebuke is the word epitemao and you're it's funny how i mention words and the same words keep coming up but Epi means upon, and tamao is a word that means to honor or to place value in. And so the rebuke is not to blast someone. Um, You know, you just rip them to shreds. That's not what he's saying. What this kind of a rebuke is, and the reason it's translated rebuke, but the reason the word is all about upon value or upon honor is that When we talk to someone about their behavior, it's important to communicate to them that they can do better than that, to hold them to a higher standard, to say, you know, that just wasn't like you. I don't think you would usually have reacted that way. And that's a way to, in an honoring way, call someone to a higher value and to a higher standard um, without just blowing them away and leaving them in the dust, so to speak. And so, um, and yet it is a rebuke. It's calling attention to what people have done, but in a way that would open communication, not close it. And if he repents, that is, if he changes his mind, literally, if he thinks differently, forgive him. Brings up a question, you know, what if somebody doesn't repent, should you forgive them? In this case, it's talking about people who do. And in most cases, if you handle it right, people will tend to repent. Um, there aren't specific a lot of specific cases in Scripture where it tells you to forgive people who don't repent. It talks about forgiving people like God does, and He forgives us only if we genuinely repent. Um, but So there, there usually is some change of mind. However... There are some general scriptures that just say to forgive people, but that isn't so much for a relationship, as it is for your own well-being and for your own peace of mind. And uh, and so, if someone repents, I can continue to have a relationship with them, even if they mess up again. If they're thinking is such that they're truly repentant and they show fruits of repentance, that's fine. However, if someone, there's still a basis for relationship, but if someone sins against you and they really don't repent, um, you should still forgive them, but for a different reason. Not so that you can continue to have a relationship with them, but you forgive them so that you are set free from the burden of carrying bitterness. Most of the time when you forgive someone, it's not for them and it's not about you know, relationship. Often people do things that break a relationship, and that's fine. That's a part of life. Offenses come. But what he is saying here is, yeah, if it's someone you can have a relationship with, there needs to be repentance. However, as a side note, anytime someone sins against you, you should let go of it quickly. Because to remain bitter and resentful and to hold things against people, as someone has said, I wish I could remember who said this, but I love the quote. He said, it's like drinking poison and waiting for the other person to die. And that's so often what we do. It's bugging us like crazy and they don't even remember it. So forgive? Do you continue to, to take abuse in a relationship? No, of course not. But if someone really gets it and demonstrates a repentance, um, you don't say, okay, that's strike one. No, you, you forgive because you think they understand it. At some point, if repentance isn't demonstrated, then at that point, still forgive. Let it go. Don't hang on to it. I know some people who just get tangled up for years in a feud with someone else or lawsuits and things like that for your own good, just let it go. It's not worth it. I was talking to someone last week who, you know, was really done wrong by some people with an inheritance, and it was a pretty good chunk of money, but by the time, you know, and he was talking about getting the meanest lawyer and going after it and all this stuff, and, you know, I said, really, um, is it worth the aggravation? It'll take you a couple of years. The lawyer will take at least half the money anyway. I said, maybe this is just one you ought to walk away from. Maybe it's just not worth it. And a lot of times that's the case. So forgiveness is good for you, but forgiveness in the face of repentance is good for relationship. And so if he sins against you seven times in a day and seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. That doesn't sound like much of a heart of repentance. So I guess it doesn't take much. But the idea is, okay, fine, I forgive you, and move on, don't hang on to it. But that's a difficult statement, so the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. They go, what? We have to forgive people who continue to take advantage of us? How in the world can we do that? How in the world could we have that kind of faith? Increase our faith. And so the Lord said, if you have faith as a mustard seed, it doesn't take a lot of faith, You can say to this mulberry tree, be pulled up by the roots and be planted in the sea and it would obey you. See, a little faith can do a lot, is his point. And which of you having a servant plowing or tending sheep will say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and sit down to eat? But will he not rather say to him, prepare something for my supper and gird yourself and serve me till I have eaten and drunk and afterwards you will eat and drink? Does he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I think not. Now, again, in their cultural situation, a servant was just someone who worked there. They didn't socialize with you. They they were only allowed in the house to wait on you, and there was no relationship at all. Jesus isn't condoning that, but he's saying in general, when someone does something for you that you pay them for, do you say thank you and act like they did you a favor? Now, in our culture, when we pay people, we still tend to say thank you. Um, don't know how sincere that always is, but you know, we're just used to, oh, thank you very much. And the logic here is, hey, if you pay for your meal and they bring it to you, you don't act like they've done you a big favor. You paid them and they did the work. And he says, that's just how it works. People do what they're paid for. Um, whether you want to quarrel with that or not, his point becomes clear in verse 10 because he says, so likewise you, when you have done all those things which you are commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. In other words, the point is, when it comes to forgiveness, when it comes to maintaining a clear conscience and releasing situations to the Lord, it only seems like it's a hard thing if somebody's asking you a favor. But if we are really servants of God, and he tells us, forgive other people the way I've forgiven you, then he says, when you forgive people, you're just doing your job. And you should just go, I'm a servant. God forgave me, told me to forgive you, and that's all I'm doing. Kind of like in the story of Philemon, um, where Paul wrote to Philemon after sending Onesimus, who was a slave of Philemon, who had run away and found the Lord, Paul sent him back home. And, but he knew Philemon, and, and Philemon probably had come to the Lord under Paul. And, and so Paul said, he left as a slave, but you accept him back as a brother. And if he owes you anything, charge it to my account that idea of, you know what, do this for me. If you owe me, do this for me. Now, we all owe God so much. And so we shouldn't act like, oh, it's such a burden to serve his people. It's so hard to forgive. It's so hard to let go. Because remember what he did for us. And if he did that for us and he tells us, now you go and do likewise, we should just go, okay, I was already paid to do this. We have been paid extravagantly to forgive people. We really have. We have been paid by eternity being handed to us. And God makes it worth our while. He has forgiven us. And here Jesus is just saying, that's your job. Do it. Don't worry about having enough faith. Just do it because it's your job. Then you have the story of the ten lepers who were cleansed. It says it happened as he went to Jerusalem that he passed through the middle of Samaria and Galilee. So he said into Jerusalem and he took a shortcut right through Samaria. Normally the Jews would skirt around the West Bank or Samaria because they hated the people in Samaria. It was a bad neighborhood. But Jesus would sometimes just go straight through there and he had reasons why. And as they were going through, he got to a certain village, and there were ten men who were lepers. And they stood afar off because they weren't allowed to come near anyone. And when someone gets near, they would need to call out unclean. They lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. They somehow knew who Jesus was, even from a distance. And so when he saw them, he said to them, go show yourselves to the priests. Now, there was in Leviticus instructions for how to be cleansed from leprosy. And there was a procedure that you go through, and you'd have to go to the priest. Now, no one was ever cleansed of leprosy. It was kind of a technicality, but Jesus had cleansed many people of leprosy, and they could go and get checked out, and sure enough, they were healed from leprosy. So he told them, go talk to the priest. And so it was as they went... They were cleansed. Catharidza, we get the word cathartic from that. They were healed. And as they're walking, they're like, wow. I imagine at first when he said, go show yourself to the priest, they were like, are you kidding me? Look at me. And they go, well, we'll do it anyway. And they began to walk. And sure enough, as they walked, they looked down and they were healed. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, returned and with a loud voice glorified God and fell down on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. And he happened to be a Samaritan. Often in the scriptures, Samaritans are or presented in a really good light, like we saw the story of the good Samaritan, the guy who went out of his way, as opposed to priests and others who didn't. Here, 10 people get healed, only one of them turns back to say thank you and that one happened to be a samaritan and jesus answered and said were there not 10 cleansed but where are the nine were there not any found who returned to give glory to god except this foreigner but he said to him arise go your way your faith has made you well um How much does God do for us that we don't thank him for? We have one day, Thanksgiving, that we primarily look forward to because it's a chance to eat too much and to watch sports on TV. Kind of sad. One day out of 365 that at least we say it's a day of Thanksgiving. Boy, with everything that God has done for us, we should be so thankful. And yet, often we find we just don't think of it. And sometimes the people who have the least are the ones who are more prone to actually be thankful. And so he's used this to call attention to the fact that, look, a foreigner, a guy that doesn't have the advantage of all the people who've been taught the law and, and, and been around Jesus' teachings his whole life and everything... This guy just knew that he wanted to be healed, and as soon as he was healed, he didn't even go run to the priest. You'd think he'd be excited to go get proclaimed clean so he could go back to his family. Maybe he hadn't seen them in years. They couldn't visit lepers. But it was more important to him to say thank you to the Lord and to worship than it was to anyone else, and then it was to him to go get well and to take care of his affairs. How important is worshiping God to us? Is it just kind of the preliminary part of the service before we get down to the real stuff? Is it just kind of going through the motions, a chance to unwind, uh, you know, think your way through the day, plan your schedule for tomorrow? Or do we literally stop and return and say, I want to focus on what I'm thankful for. The consequences of not being thankful is ungratefulness in other areas. When we thank God, it reminds us of how good he has been to us. When we don't thank him, we become spoiled rotten. It becomes, well, what he did for us, that's just expected. It's just par for the course. May God help us to be those who are truly thankful, that look around us every day at what God has done that go through life and appreciating the beauty of a day like today, just an unbelievably gorgeous day. The sunsets we've had over the last few days. Some of the, I mean, just a nice breeze blowing, temperate weather, green trees, little things happening, plywood going up in the church. I mean, around us are so many things that, that we could say, God, thanks so much. We so appreciate you. You're so good. And when we begin to notice what he's done for us, our attention is called away from what he hasn't yet done for us. Now if there are things you want him to do for you, by all means pray for those things. But it makes a lot more sense to spend way more time thanking him for what he's already done than to mope around about what he hasn't done yet. You know, it's kind of like I got a new microphone and because the Law changed the frequency, so I had to get a different one. So I got this cool new microphone. And I'm excited about it. I'm like, yeah, let's let's use it tonight. We'll test it out. And I bring it in here. I get it all plugged in and everything, and it's like not working. And then I thought, it is kind of light. So I checked and needed batteries. So I put batteries in it. And my batteries are really old. I mean, they're new, but they're a no-name cheap brand. And And about every other one doesn't work. And so I thought, oh, this stupid thing is bad. We're going to have to send it back. But I go, I'll try two more batteries. And I tried two more batteries. It fired right up, and it works. A lot of times, that's the way we are with life. It's like God does something for us, but we go, yeah, but he hasn't done this yet, and it's not perfect. Don't you hate it when people get a gift, and then they kind of pick it apart or scrutinize it or act like, well, you know, this is really nice, but... How am I going to afford to maintain it? Or, you know, I remember there were a bunch of people when on the Oprah Winfrey Show when they, they gave brand new Chevrolets to everyone in the audience, and people started complaining about the fact that, yeah, but they have to pay registration and taxes. It's a new car. You know, sure, it would have been better if it was a Toyota or something, but still if they would only stop. but you know, so often that's the way we are with God. We're so ungrateful. And this guy, this Samaritan, just goes, hey, thanks. By the way, he got a little bonus. It, it, have you ever wondered why it says, arise, go your way, your faith has made you well? I thought they were healed, cleansed, catharizo in verse 14. Well, made you well is really not a good translation there, I don't think. The word there is the word sozo. That's the word that means saved. And this guy demonstrated a faith in Jesus Christ, and I believe at that moment of thanksgiving, he was saved. He got more than being healed from leprosy. He got an eternal relationship with God. And some people never get there because they're either focused on whether or not they have what they want or they're focused on what they don't have. Now, when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, He answered them and said, the kingdom of God does not come with observation. That word there for observation means an intense, almost hostile scrutiny. It's it's the kind of observation that a detective would do, shining the light in someone's eyes and trying to get them to fess up. Nor will they say, see here or see there, for indeed the kingdom of God is within you or among you. The Pharisees were wondering, so when are you going to really set up your kingdom? When's this going to happen? And he said, you know what? It's not like that. You're not going to sit there and scrutinize me and find out when anything is going to happen. But he said also, it's not about a place. The kingdom of God is greater than just the Messiah setting up his kingdom. It's about the world being judged. It's about realizing and recognizing who God is. It's about accepting the Messiah. And so what he's saying is, hey, the kingdom of God is standing right here. I'm the king, and you don't even get that. He wasn't saying these guys were unbelievers. He wasn't saying the kingdom of God is mystically inside of you. There are people who use the scripture and teach that, well, there's no literal kingdom they're all millennialists, but they would go, oh, the kingdom of God is actually something that's inside you because, because the Holy Spirit's inside you. The trouble is he said this to Pharisees who were unbelieving and there wasn't anything inside them. And, but he, what he was saying was, it's right here. It's with you. However, then he talked to the disciples to make it clear, the kingdom of God is me being with you, but there is a lot more to it than that. All the prophecies of the Old Testament will be fulfilled as well. And so he told them, the days will come when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man and you'll not see it. They were going to look forward to his return and he kind of hints at them that in their lifetime maybe it wouldn't happen. They will say to you, look here or look there. Don't go after them or follow them. A lot of people would claim to be Messiah. A lot of people would say, oh, this guy's the Messiah or that guy's the Messiah. We have people to this day who are others are claiming that they are the Messiah. Basically, Jesus said, expect that phoniness. When, the, when I come back, you're going to know. Nobody's going to wonder whether the kingdom came. The kingdom isn't something that's going to sneak up on you like the Jehovah's Witnesses believed. It came, but you just didn't notice. He goes, no, as the lightning that flashes out of one part under heaven shines to the other part under heaven, so also the Son of Man will be in his day. So he goes, when the time comes for the kingdom to be set up, you're not going to miss it. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be also in the days of the Son of Man. So he makes it clear at least that this can't happen until after he dies and rises from the dead, certainly. And then it'll be a major event that you can't miss. Nobody would have been saying, look here or look there, before Jesus died, right? Because Jesus was still here. So he's obviously talking about something that happens after he goes, People will be claiming, you know, making false claims about the return of Christ, but that's not the case. He goes, there's going to be a time when people don't expect it, just like in the days of Noah, they were laughing at the notion of a flood, they were rejecting the preaching, and he goes, in the same way, there's going to be a time when nobody's going to expect it and you can't miss it. They ate, drank, married wives, given in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, as it was also in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so will it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. So... Jesus is now talking to them about a future event. When you talk about the day of the Lord or the day of Christ, as often Matthew calls it, um, it's not one day. It's a series of events that have been prophesied. It includes, in a major way, judgment. And so he's saying, just like in Noah, just like in Sodom, the judgment's going to hit the world and they're not going to know what hit them. They're not going to know what to expect. It's just going to happen. And so he said, that's the way it's going to be. They won't expect it. And devastation is going to happen just like it did in those events. Even so will it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. In that day, he who is on the housetop and his goods are in the house, let him not come down to take them away. And likewise, the one who is in the field, let him not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever, remember Lot's wife had headed out of Sodom, but she turned around and was kind of missing Sodom, and she turned into a pillar of salt. Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you, in that night there will be two men in one bed. The one will be taken, and the other will be left. Two women will be grinding together. The one will be taken, and the other left. Two men will be in the field. The one will be taken, and the other left. And they answered and said to him, Where, Lord? So he said to them, Wherever the body is, there the eagles will be gathered together. Now, he's referring to a day yet future to them when obviously judgment was coming, but there also seems to be some who were removed from the judgment. And he doesn't talk to them that they would be there. He talks to them about they people who would be there. Now one interesting thing to note is that this was not a local event. There are people who say this is referring to the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD under Titus the Roman general. And so then these are people who would generally, generally categorize themselves as preterists. A preterist looks at all biblical prophecy and sees that it's already been fulfilled. And so they look at these kinds of things and they say he was just referring to the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. But the problem is when you look at these things, he's referring to some sort of worldwide event because it happened suddenly and yet some people are working out in the field Oh, the ladder fell? Cool. (laughs) I was hoping that was going to happen. I was dragging this whole judgment thing out (laughs) until... Now, notice that some people are in the field working. Some people are sleeping in bed at night. So it seems to be a worldwide phenomenon wouldn't fit with something that only happened locally in Jerusalem. Now, people want to argue about this passage because people who don't believe in a a rapture and in particular a pre-tribulation rapture they like to point out that, oh, when it's talking about one will be taken and the other left and, and all that kind of stuff, um, it, it's referring to people being taken for judgment. And, so, and when you look at the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, it has a reference to people being taken for judgment and, and the last verse, verse 37, seems to emphasize that too. However, it makes you wonder Why did he bring up Noah and Lot? Because in both of those cases, godly people were removed from the situation before the judgment came. And so to me, and again, one taken and the other left. So is the taken taken for judgment? What happens to the one who is left? No one during the great tribulation period is going to have it easy. Everyone's gonna, the judgment's going to be universal and worldwide where huge percentages of the population will be wiped out. So it doesn't seem like a great comfort to say you're going to go through that as in First Thessalonians chapter 4 when Paul said after talking about the rapture, we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and so shall we ever be with the Lord. He says, therefore comfort one another with these words. And so Jesus here seems to be telling them, don't worry, this isn't going to be you. You're going to hear things, but when it happens, they are going to see it. And so, to me, the clearest reading of this passage is that he's warning about the day of judgment that's to come, no doubt about it, it's going to be like Sodom, it's going to be like the earth under the flood, but he's also talking about the fact that some people will be spared, some people will be taken out of it, and so I don't have a problem with this referring to the rapture. The people who do have a problem with this referring to the rapture are primarily people who don't want to believe in the rapture. And so uh, if that's you, that's fine. I believe if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you'll be raptured with the rest of us. So you're not going to have to answer a few questions about the Left Behind series before you actually get raptured. It's, it's the grace of God, and if you've given your life to Him, you'll be fine. I believe you'll be with us, caught up in the air. And then this last verse where they go, where? The idea is, you know, where are they going to be taken? And he said, wherever the body is, there the eagles will be gathered together. Now some people interpret this scripture to talk about you will, Isaiah 40:31. you'll mount up with wings as eagles. The body will be there. The eagles will be gathered. And that this whole thing is a reference to the rapture. Um, I think that's probably pretty weak. Um, because this phrase sounds an awful lot like Revelation 19 and verse 17. Where, well, let's just turn over there quickly. We have all night. <laughs> Revelation 19.17, referring to the Battle of Armageddon, John says, Then I saw, and this is after Christ came on a white horse and uh, had a a sword coming out of his mouth to strike the nations, so the end of the tribulation period. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun and he cried with a loud voice saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, come and gather together for the supper of the great God that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and those who sit on them and so on. So this sounds awful Armageddon-ish, the language, and according to William Barclay, this phrase uh, the, eagles will be, the, the body will be where the eagles are gathered together was a common um, proverb in those days saying if you see the vultures landing you know where the body is, you know where the meat is and, and basically they use this saying to say judgment is going to come, judgment is inevitable. So again, in this passage I see deliverance and I see judgment, the primary emphasis being on judgment, certainly. But I have no problem seeing that the rapture fits in with this as well. Chapter 18, then he spoke a parable to them. And Luke quite often does this. He has a parable and he tells why Jesus told the parable. He spoke a parable so that men ought always to pray and not to lose heart. In other words, it would keep praying that we wouldn't quit. So there was a certain city, a judge, who didn't fear God or regard man. Now there was a widow in that city, and she came to him saying, get justice for me from my adversary. She needed a legal decision. And he would not for a while, but afterward he said within himself, I don't fear God, I don't care about people, but because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. Then the Lord said, hear what the unjust judge said, and shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them. Now, there are some problems with this, like using a parable whereby an unjust judge represents God the Father, and also a guy who's doing what he's doing for all the wrong reasons as somehow representing what God does. Um, And and then it gets a little more complicated because he says in verse 8, I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? So you can see a contrast. He's saying, God our Father is not like an unjust judge. The unjust judge waits until he's totally pestered, but God loves us and therefore will respond quickly, speedily. However, Again, he responds speedily to those who, as he says, cry out day and night to him. And he asks the question at the end, will he, when the Son, Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? So it isn't as simple as saying, an unjust judge will take care of you if you bug him enough. But God's not unjust, and so he's going to take care of you quickly. Don't worry about it. Because remember, the point of the parable, as Luke states in the first verse, is so that people would keep praying. So really, it's trying to teach that. It's trying to teach persistence. There are people, especially among the faith, so-called faith movement, faith teachers, um, who say that if you pray for something more than once, you have a lack of faith. You should ask once, And you hand it to God and you take your hands away and you don't ask again. Now that's completely logical and it sounds really good um, but it's just wrong. The Bible just doesn't teach that. In fact Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane prayed the exact same words three times. Paul when he had his thorn in the flesh continued to pray three times before God told him my grace is sufficient for you. God wants us to be persistent in prayer and A lot of times our prayers are for our benefit it's things change as you continue to pray for them and often I'm really glad that God doesn't answer my prayer the first time I say it because sometimes after I pray for something a while I realize that was stupid that was a dumb prayer and I'm glad he didn't pray it I'm glad God didn't do it my way in fact if God did it my way I'd be God and I'd be in trouble And yet, I need to continue to ask. And I believe that, I don't think we should just always ask, okay, God, whatever you want, whatever you want, whatever you want. I think we should ask specifically for what we feel like God is laying on our heart to do. If he ever changes that, then we can modify that prayer. So if there's somebody I know who doesn't know Christ, I pray that they'll get saved. If there's someone I know who is sick, I pray that God will heal them. And if someone doesn't have a job, I pray that they'll get a job because that's what I want. And he says he'll give us the desires of our heart. However, if I pray and I don't see anything happening, I keep praying. And at the same time, I'm listening. Okay, God, is there a little different purpose that you have here? But what I don't want to do is to lose heart and to not have faith because that seems to be the issue. I pray. God doesn't do what I want him to do, so I quit. You don't quit on God. He's God. You're his servant. You do what he tells you to do. You do the best you can at what he is calling you to do. And you cry out to him. And you ask him for whatever you want to ask. And sometimes when you've been praying for years, he will answer instantly. See, that's not a contradiction. The point of saying that he'll answer speedily isn't that he's working on it all this time and he's trying to figure out what to do. God can just think something and he's done it. And I often think, okay God, why don't you do this? But the timing isn't right. And some of it is he wants to teach me to pray. He wants to teach me to be more um, persistent in my prayers. Other times it's just the circumstances aren't right for him to do what I would like him to do. And so when he does it, it'll be instant, but he might wait a long time before then. We used to know a man, a friend of my mom's and, and my dad's, who was a Jewish guy named Danny Rose, and I felt close to him. He was just a godly Jewish believer, and his birthday was on the same day as mine, so we would always joke about that when we would go to the church at the open door and we would see him there in Los Angeles. Um... But he became a Christian when he was a teenager and he prayed for his family until he was around 90 years old and no one in his family had accepted Christ. But he prayed for them constantly at the prayer meetings he would pray for them by name and he was just... And luckily for, their, for his relatives he lived to be over 100. And in the last 10 years of his life Something like 170 of his relatives came to Christ. Now for that many Jews to accept Christ, that's quick. That's amazing. But it just took a lot of praying to get to that point. And how much more rewarding it is when God answers prayers after we've been praying for a long time. And in the meantime, it cleans up our requests and the Holy Spirit kind of helps us to not pray for stupid things. Now Jesus, uh, it says he spoke the parable uh, to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. So he goes, here's a parable for people who thought they were sufficient, who thought they were righteous, and they looked down their nose at other people. Anybody like that? (laughs) Sometimes, all of us. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. That's like the most righteous guy and the greatest dirtbag that their society had to offer. A Pharisee and an IRS agent. And the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. Notice, he wasn't even praying to God. He was pretending to pray, but really he was praying to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, and then he kind of opens his eyes and sees this tax collector. Or even this guy right here. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I possess. The tax collector's kind of embarrassed being the illustration of this guy's prayer. You know, it'd be like if I came here and goes, well, let's, let's pray beforehand. And I go, God, I thank you that I am really special, that I serve you greatly, that I do a lot for you. God, I thank you, I'm not like Myrene down here. (laughs) How would Myrene feel? And uh, so, he goes on to say, the tax collector stood at a distance, he didn't want any attention, and he wouldn't so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast, and that was the way they would mourn, and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. The word humbled means to be pressed, and the word exalted means to be elevated. And this is such a powerful principle of life, spiritually and in every other way. Promote yourself. You're cruising for a bruising, you're looking for a fall. Something's going to happen. A lot of people will be looking to knock you off your pedestal. Um, And God himself will allow that to happen in order to humble you. But if you humble yourself, then God will exalt you. God will bless you in ways that you can't imagine. And so this parable reminds us that for all of us, we have no business judging other people. Be careful when other people's sin starts to really irritate you. Be careful when you start looking at sinners and just going, how could they do that? Be careful when you start looking at the world and saying, this place disgusts me so much. I don't know why God doesn't just destroy it. Um, I don't know why God doesn't judge these people. Be really careful. Because he looks on those people and his heart just burns with compassion for them. You can almost predict when you find a really judgmental person, they are going to be flattened. It's going to happen. So pronate yourself, humble yourself in the sight of God, and and he'll lift you up. That's, That's the way to do it. And Jesus teaches that in a thousand different ways. And then a bunch of people are bringing their kids so that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked the people. Same word, by the way, Epitimeo, um, to call someone to value. Probably what the disciples were doing is they were saying, you guys aren't important enough. Jesus is too important to be messing with children. And so Jesus had to explain their priorities are a little different than you think. And Jesus called them to him and said, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them for of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. Jesus talked about kids a lot in the kingdom Um, and here he was saying, you somehow think the kids aren't as important as you? Are you kidding, man? You've squandered most of your life. They have their whole life ahead of them. D.L. Moody, one time, after preaching somewhere, he was staying at a home of some some people, and and they said, well, how did the the revival go tonight? And he said, it was pretty good, three and a half converts. And they said, oh, how cute, three adults and one child. He goes, no, three children and one adult. He said, the adult only had half of his life left children have their whole lives we cannot emphasize enough and Jesus goes to great lengths to explain how important kids are it's why we need to protect them it's why they're worth the time that you invest in children it's why we have children's ministry it's not just to to keep the kids busy so that you know the adults can be ministered to The truth is what I do with the adults in here is closer to babysitting and what they do out there is closer to ministry as far as Jesus is concerned. Because those kids out there have their entire lives to give to Jesus Christ. Many of us have botched them up so much that God still loves us but the potential of someone who has their whole life is amazing. And for us until we can become childlike we can never connect with the presence of God with the kingdom of God. That's why it's important to every once in a while just hang out with some kids. Just offer to babysit the kids of someone you know. They'll appreciate getting away. And when you're around kids, you'll start to feel closer to God. At first, because you're crying out to Him out of desperation. <laughs> but ultimately, think about how we treat kids. We're nice to them, we're loving and comforting to them. We talk really plainly. We smile at them to try to get them to smile back. And kids are so cooperative. You can get them to smile by you smiling at them. Adults, that doesn't work. You smile at an adult and they'll go, what? <laughs> get that smile off your face. There's a, I could go on about this forever. I'm passionate about children and children's ministry, but, but you know, let me just say this. We have so much that we could learn from children. So much. Oh, man, sometimes I hear Sally McRae's kids just do and say some of the most amazing things, Eddie and Sally. And uh, I hear things like one day Mackenzie was in there um, washing her hands before dinner. and It was taking a long time. And Sally said, Mackenzie, come on, we've got to eat. Get in here. And she goes, well, I'm praying. And she was praying as she was washing her hands and then she turned off the water, and, and then as she was coming back, she turned back to where she was praying, and she said, I love you too, to the Lord. When was the last time you did that when you prayed? That's profound. It's beautiful, it's cute, but it's real. I am telling you, kids have more of a grasp on spiritual reality than adults do often. And so Jesus knew that, and he loved hanging out with them. Now the story of the rich young ruler, this guy ruler came and said, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Well, inheriting eternal life might be a problem. But Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? He's calling him a good teacher. So what's good about me? No one's good but one, and that is God. Now Jesus is either saying, I'm not good, or he's saying, I'm not God, and clearly Um, You know, I think it's pretty plain that what he was saying is, I'm more than a good teacher. I'm God. You know the commandments. Don't commit adultery. Don't murder. Don't steal. Don't bear false witness. Going through the Ten Commandments, honor your father and mother. The guy said, yep, done all this ever since I was a little kid. Well, he's not too prideful, is he? So when Jesus heard these things, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. But when he heard this, he became very sorrowful, for he was very rich. Now Jesus wasn't saying that everyone has to sell everything that they have to come after him, but he looked at this guy and he knew that that was what would stand between him and God. And so he got right to the source, and it was obviously right, because the guy was sorrowful, and when you read about this in, in uh, Mark and, and in Matthew, you see that the guy walked away. And it says over in Mark chapter 10 that when Jesus did this, he looked at him and he loved him. He wasn't just trying to get rid of the guy. He, he loved him. But he knew there's no way the guy could connect with God until he could get over his attachment to material things. And so it was sad, but he left. Reminds you of the famous story of Diogenes, a Greek Greek, um, philosopher, who was famous for not wanting any material things. Diogenes spent most of his life sitting in a bucket (laughs) and reflecting on reality. Alexander the Great, after he had basically conquered the whole known world, still felt like something was missing. He still wasn't happy. And so he came to Diogenes and he said, he said, Diogenes, you're perfectly happy sitting in a bucket. I've conquered the world and I'm not. And so I want to be your disciple because I want you to teach me how to be happy. And Diogenes pulled out a couple of dead fish and he said, okay, stick these fish in the pocket of your tunic and carry them around for a couple weeks then come back and you can be my disciple couple of weeks with dead fish and Alexander the Great just thought you're nuts. Took the fish and threw him down he said I, I don't need this. He threw him down and walked away and Diogenes said to the people around him my oh my such devotion dissipated over two dead fish. And it's the same kind of thing here. You're coming and going oh I'll do anything for you. What do I need to do? I'll follow you anywhere. Well, then do this. What? Forget it. (laughs) A lot of times you have people who come and say, can I help you all do anything? You give them something to do and they don't do it. You got anything else? You give them something else to do, they don't do it. You got anything else? And they're waiting until you finally ask them to do something that they want to do. And that's why the scriptures talk about someone who is faithful in small things will then be entrusted with greater things. And so for this guy, he missed the chance because of his materialism, and that's sad. And when Jesus saw that he became very sorrowful, he said how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. For it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. A lot of people have said that the eye of the needle was a very small gate in the side of the city, and the only way to get a camel through it was to get off all the all the uh, saddle and all of his luggage and everything so he could fit through there. Um, But that's not true. There's no historical evidence of a gate ever being called the eye of a needle. And here the disciples assumed that what he was saying is impossible, not just difficult. So I think Jesus was literally making this absurd statement, taking a camel through the eye of a needle. He said, getting a rich guy saved is harder than that. And it is tough for rich people to get saved. And those who heard it said, well then, who can be saved? And he said, the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. So it's impossible for a rich person to be saved. And we're all rich compared to someone. And yet God is in the business of doing the impossible. And so he is able to help us to overcome our love of material things and anything else that might hold us back, our lust and other things, So Peter said, well, at least we're not rich. Look, we've left all and followed you. The implication is, so what do we get? And he said to them, assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or parents or brothers or wife or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who shall not receive many times more in this present time and in the age to come eternal life. So Jesus said, don't worry about what you give up to follow Christ. A lot of times people just moan about what they had and then they gave it all up to follow Christ. Um, What Jesus says is, doesn't matter what you give up, God will make it so much worth your while in this life and in eternity. So don't worry about anything that you've given up to follow him. Realize he's going to make it worth your while. God will not be a debtor to any man and he will always make it worthwhile. And so uh, then he says, uh, he took the 12 aside and he tried to prepare them. You know, do you guys understand I'm going to die. Look, we're going to Jerusalem. Everything that's been written by the prophets concerning the Son of Man will be accomplished. He'll be delivered to the Gentiles and will be mocked and insulted and spit on, and they'll scourge him and kill him. And the third day he will rise again. I mean, it has a happy ending, but they lost him on delivery, mocked, insulted, spit, and everything. They understood none of these things. This saying was hidden from them, and they did not know the things which were spoken. Now, it doesn't mean necessarily that, that there was some supernatural deal going on whereby they couldn't comprehend it, or he said it and they didn't hear it. Because the fact that it got recorded later, obviously they heard it, but they just didn't quite get it. They just thought maybe he's speaking in spiritual terms. And it's amazing what we see That is because of what we expect to see. And it's amazing what we don't see when we're not looking for it. And so they were so expecting to take over and rule that uh, they couldn't get it. It's kind of like, uh, I think it was on um, NBC, one of those news magazine shows. They re-ran it recently and I saw part of it again. But they did little tricks to show you how your eyes can play tricks on you and your ears too. And one of them was amazing. They had two groups of people, one dressed in black, the other in white with basketballs. And they were moving around in a weave passing the basketball. And they said, while you watch it, they said, pick either the white or the black and count how many times they pass the ball. And so you're watching it and they're passing the ball back and forth and you're counting and and you go, okay, 17 or whatever. And They say the count, and you're right, you did did get it. Then they said, but did you see anything else happening while they were doing this? And I'm watching it. I had seen it before, and I was still like, I forget this. What what happened? Well, the host of the show, a news guy, went walking across the stage right in the middle of these guys weaving through, spun around, did a 360, waved at the camera, and walked on, and uh, you didn't even see it. Most people in the audience didn't see it. They showed it back in slow motion, and I still didn't see it. And so I T-voted, I went back, and I freeze-framed it, and sure enough, the guy walked right across the thing, and you don't see it. So that was true with a lot of this kind of stuff. Your brain is always filling in gaps of missing pieces of information. And an awful lot of what you think you know, you've actually put there, And you see this in witnesses to crimes and things like that. They're absolutely certain of what they saw. But in reality, there may be a a camera or something like that that proves that wasn't what you saw. Um, Same way with the disciples. They were confused because this was just so foreign to who they were and what they understood. Then it happened as he was coming near Jericho that a certain blind man sat by the road begging. And hearing a multitude Passing by, he asked what it meant, and they told him that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by, and he cried out, saying, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. Then those who went before warned him that he should be quiet. But he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. So Jesus stood still and commanded him to be brought to him, and when he had come near, he asked him, saying, What do you want me to do for you? Kind of a funny question, a guy who's blind. Um, but sometimes the Lord is waiting for us to say what, you know, we want him to do. That's what prayer is, is saying what he already knows we want, but he wants to hear us ask for it. He said, Lord, that I may receive my sight. Then Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus, glorifying God and all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. They were all just thrilled that this guy got his life back, that he was touched and, and healed by God. So, well, I actually finished on time tonight. Actually, I was going to I was gonna try to get through chapter 20, so that's not quite accurate. But um, let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the fact that Jesus knows people so well because he was one, that his teaching just touches us right where we live, right where we are. Help us to learn from our Lord and help us to prioritize our lives in such a way that what's important to you is important to us. Many of us are like the rich young ruler where our things mean so much to us. Some of us have grown up so much that we don't even remember what it's like to play and to be a child, to have that kind of faith. Some of us aren't praying like we should. We're so overwhelmed by our needs that we, we give up on asking. We become so discouraged we stop asking. Others of us are judging others and, and, and headed for a fall. Lord, whatever the circumstance, you know us, you know who we are. Lord, I just pray that you would work in our lives, and we thank you for giving us this time tonight to sit at your feet, to experience what it was like for the disciples to listen to your teaching and learn the lessons that you have for us. In Jesus' name, amen.